Oh, Father, thank you so much for the way that you made um, that we could be saved from our sinfulness. And that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the great gospel, the reality that as the scriptures prophesied and were fulfilled in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And that he now lives for all of eternity as our Lord and Savior. Thank you for sending your son to represent yourself in such a clear way. And thank you for recording for us his very words. And as we study them this morning, would you please help the the word to come alive to us and challenge our hearts and renew us and refresh us and encourage us. We need it and we want it. And we will anticipate allowing your spirit to teach us and to conform us to the image of your son to help us to go from here, to live as salt and light in a needy world. We commit this hour to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I ran into a little article that uh, uh, referenced that some time ago, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City ran an advertisement in New York newspapers inviting anyone who would like to make the first journey to another planet to submit an application. They say that within a matter of days, they literally received over 18,000 people who applied. Want to go to another planet and live? Sure, I'll apply for that. They say in the article that these applications were given then to a panel of psychologists who upon reviewing them concluded that the vast majority of those who had applied were motivated by the drive to want to start a new life. They thought that by heading to another planet, they would be less discouraged than if they stayed on this planet. Now, I'm not offering us to jump on a spaceship and head to another planet at all, But I do want to invite you to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. And and I do want you to consider some new attitudes for living. I wonder if your Christian life is a little bit like some of those New Yorkers wanting to get a new start, just kind of discouraged, and if I could just start over again. Do you ever feel that way in your life and maybe specifically in your Christian walk? If I could just start over... Maybe I could get it right this time. Well, you don't need to start over. You just need to start right now with an attitude adjustment. And as Jesus teaches this Sermon on the Mount, and it's where we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are a section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. It's because it says in the beginning of chapter 5 that he went up on the mountain. It was really just a high spot. And Luke says there was a flat spot there and that he sat down like a a teacher or rabbi was accustomed to doing in that time. And it says that his disciples gathered around. And between Luke's account and Matthew's account, we know that it was a huge crowd. Luke describes them as a crowd of his followers. We also know by some of the content in this message that no doubt mixed in with the group or at least on the fringes of the group, there were skeptics and Pharisees. We started into this last week. Let's read it in its entirety again, this section called the Beatitudes. 
the Beatitudes. There's our attitude word. Because really what Jesus is doing in just laying out his teaching, he immediately addresses the attitudes of our hearts. You're going to recognize that all of these Beatitudes have one thing in common, and it is that it has everything to do with what's going on in the inside of you that will ultimately show on the outside of you. What's on the inside will eventually come out. A lot of people are challenged by this, as am I. This entire sermon, this Matthews 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, has some very tough challenge to it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Just let God and His grace teach you through it. Jesus isn't taking much time to explain the how-to. Did you notice that? He just, uh, he just begins to teach, and He says, these are the beautiful attitudes. That's sort of what beatitude means. Some people call it the beautiful attitudes. It comes, remember, from a Latin word, beatitude, comes from a Latin word that means blissful or happy. Attitudes of joy. Let's read through this list again, and then let's pick up about three or four more of them this week. And I want us to think of it in terms of renewing our attitude. What kind of attitude do you have as you walk with Christ, and are His attitudes showing in you? It's time for an attitude adjustment. For some of us, it's long overdue. Verse 2, chapter 5 of Matthew, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's our heaven theme, why we picked music today. Just... Out of the Beatitudes, the reality that all of these blessings might not come true today, although I believe the Sermon on the Mount applies to us today, some of it is going to unfold even in eternity future. Well, there they are. This is the way Jesus begins. It just says he opened his mouth and he began to teach. He doesn't say how to get these attitudes. He doesn't say, he doesn't give you a seven step or a ten step program to figure out how you're going to rebuild these attitudes into your life. I find that those kinds of programs can be very helpful. Books that are how to books, you know, five ways to do this and so forth. That can be very helpful. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, here it is. And I take it that through the power of the Holy Spirit and through further instruction in His Word, and as we pursue righteousness, He shows us how to build these attitudes into our lives. A lot of us have a real need in our Christian life to freshen up. We're boring, tired, even angry Christians. And we need to be renewed in our spirit and renewed in our attitude. Let's receive this this morning as four attitudes that Christ would implement and build into our lives. 
Let's begin by just reminding ourselves of a couple little things that we talked about last week. Remember, we have this strange view of happiness that Jesus is talking about because when he says blessed, and his audience would have understood that word to be a person who was contented, a person who had an inner joy and a peace that was outside of the circumstances of their lives. For many of us, that's why we're not happy Christians. And we came to know Christ and we, we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and we thought then that Jesus was going to be a little bit like our lucky charm. You know, me and Jesus and everything's going to be good from now on. I'm going to have a cute boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to, you know, have shiny chrome wheels on my car because I got Jesus. And that's not how it works at all. In fact, some of the things that he's going to bring up, your, your mind is going to um, be challenged to understand how is it that when someone persecutes you, that you should be blessed and consider yourself happy. That's a little bit difficult to understand. And so early on, immediately, as a matter of fact, when he said, blessed are you who are, and he says, poor in spirit, we know right away that this is the idea of a deep-seated humility. We use the illustration of Lazarus, the poor man, at the rich man's table, how he crawled around on the floor looking for scraps because he was utterly helpless and empty and hopeless, and he was completely dependent on someone for his sustenance. And Lazarus, from that story in Luke 16, he crawled around looking for scraps from the table that he couldn't come up with himself. And the idea here is that, spiritually speaking, this is the entry point. This is the beginning. And the Beatitudes are in a logical sequence. And this is the starting point because, look, blessed is the person who is poor in spirit. Why? Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ha! You see, listen. If you're not broken in spirit, you're not humble, you don't make it to the kingdom of heaven. The here and now kingdom of heaven and the future kingdom of heaven. Proud, arrogant, self-sustaining people who can handle it don't go to heaven. They don't need a savior. Save from what? I got this. I can handle it. And so early on, we recognize that Jesus is talking about something here. And one of the things we need to realize this week is that as he spoke to his audience, and it was a Jewish audience, that they knew the Old Testament very well. Remember in our introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, and by the way, we're working our way through Matthew if you're new with us. And, um, and, and it, early on, we recognized that the that it was a very Jewish audience and that they had a high level of understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, in a minute, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 61 and you're going to see that, that the context of Isaiah 61 and, and that when Jesus speaks these Beatitudes, he's couching it in Isaiah 61. And in fact, we can understand that, our, that the listening audience in that first century Jewish audience, that they would have probably, many of them, had Isaiah 61 memorized. In a few minutes, we're going to see Psalm 37 is, is part of what Jesus is referencing. And they would be very, very familiar passages of Scripture to his audience. Now, we're not very Jewish at all here. And in fact, we don't even pay that much attention to the Old Testament. And so the message is weakened or lost on us sometimes, and we don't connect the dots the way his audience would have. 
And in Isaiah 61, you need to understand that the context there is an Israel that is very broken and lost in its sinfulness. And the prophet Isaiah is calling out to them to become poor in their spirit and to become broken hearted and to humble themselves before mighty God and and to get rid of their sinfulness so that God can bless them again. And so one of the things we see is when Jesus actually quoting, essentially quoting from Isaiah 61, that he's talking about spiritual truths here. He's talking about, spiritually speaking, I need to be poor in spirit. The idea of being poor, cowering down like a beggar. I am so needy as a sinner that I don't have any ability to solve this problem on myself by myself any more than Lazarus had the ability to solve his hunger problems apart from the scraps that fell off of, of the rich man's table. And so it is, we want scraps from heaven. And I say that carefully. That God sent not just scraps, but he invites us to his banqueting table to feast with Jesus. But you don't get there if you don't accept the invitation. And if you're too busy off buying land or looking at cattle, like Jesus has another story, invite them to my banquet and have them come. Say, I gotta go. I gotta, I bought some animals. I gotta go look at them. I bought some land. I gotta go look at it. Jesus said, go along to buy highways and byways. Find the poor and the needy. Bring them into me. Why? Because it's easier for poor people than rich people to recognize their needfulness for God and for Christ and not be proud and arrogant and self-sustaining so that they're broken in spirit, but no one gets into the kingdom of heaven apart from a broken spirit, apart from humility, about coming down with their heads bowed, their heart bowed, and acknowledging that all I need comes from you, and I can't supply any of it. And so that is why Jesus is redefining happiness. Because if you're broken in spirit, you end up in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's like, this is where I want to be. So it's okay if I lose the whole world, but I gain my soul in the kingdom. Who would keep the temporary things of this world to lose your soul and to be rejected from the kingdom, you see? And so Jesus begins at the entry point. And so point number one in our attitudes that we need to pick up from Jesus is the attitude of brokenness. It's an attitude of brokenness. And in fact, number one, we're going to deal with the starting point of brokenness, which I've already described, but he's going to build on it with the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Now that's interesting. You have to ask yourself, what do you cry about? What are the things that upset me? What are the things that break my heart? And I don't think of myself as being blessed, happy, Uh, Let's remind ourselves that that's a happiness that doesn't come from externals. It comes from an inner joy and contentment of being right with God so that I'm at peace with God, regardless of my external circumstances. Uh, Most of us flip it around. Most of us are looking so much to a relationship. We're looking so much to a bank account. We're looking so much to a full refrigerator. We're looking so much to a certain temperature in my living room to make me happy. And when that doesn't happen, when that doesn't happen, I'm not happy. It's too cold in here. There's no food around here. I'm not happy. What well, that's all externals and I'm not saying that it's not nice to have a comfortable living room. It, in a, cold, in, a, in a refrigerator with cold milk and lunch meat. And we talked last week how this is not to be confused with 
a poverty doctrine where you're more spiritual if you don't have those things. The point is, though, don't look to those externals for your joy. And so, blessed are those who mourn. Now, why are we mourning? Let's go to Isaiah 61, and let's, let's look and see what we think he's saying here. Isaiah 61, and you might hold your bulletin there in Matthew 5, so we might flip back and forth just a little bit. So we're still working on attitude number one. It's the attitude of, the, of brokenness. If I'm going to have a joy in Christ, it begins at the starting point of brokenness. The starting point is brokenness. I, from last week, we are poor in spirit. That is, we have nothing to offer. And this week, we add to that verse 4, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's read Isaiah 61. And this is what the audience that Jesus was speaking to would have related to immediately. Jesus says, and you know this from Luke, Luke's account, when Jesus read the scroll in the temple, remember, he read the scroll, rolled it back up and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. It's Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, let's back up just a little bit and not miss the words. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring what? Bring good news to whom? To the poor. You see the relationship between Matthew 5? And to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What is he talking about? He's talking about Israel who's captive because of their sin. They can be freed from their sin. They can be freed from captivity. And they can have the, the, the Lord's favor return. And the Lord will have vengeance for them on their enemies. And He will do what at the end of verse 2? He will comfort all those who mourn. He will comfort those who mourn. Let's, let's look back at verse 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's almost an exact quote from Isaiah 61.2. He will comfort those who mourn. Jesus turns it around and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me remind you that Isaiah 61 that their mourning represented there had to do with their sinfulness, their rejection of God, and all of the horrible things that had come upon Israel, even to the point that they were starving to death for food as a nation, even to the point that in some times it got so horrible that they ate their babies. That's how bad it got. That's how starved they got. That's how broken they got. And God would bring other nations to swoop down upon them, to harass them and ultimately to carry them away in the dispersion. Verse 3, he says in Isaiah 61, and to, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and so on. Back to Matthew 5 now. You see the parallel there? Jesus is teaching the crowd, you got to have the right attitude, and the right attitude, number one, is an attitude of brokenness. 
And it's broken because we're poor in spirit because of our sinfulness. And because I recognize my sinfulness, I'm welcomed into the kingdom. But also, as I recognize my sinfulness and I'm poor in spirit, then I begin to mourn and grieve. I will cry over that. It breaks my heart how stupid I've been. It breaks my heart how sinful I've been. It breaks my heart how many people I've hurt. You have, you know the testimony. Some of you have dramatic testimonies of how much hurt sin has brought into your lives. But all of us, our sin has put Jesus on the cross and it breaks our heart. It grieves us. But how does this make us happy with this strange kind of happiness? Because we will be comforted. Do you know the relief of guilt forgiven? Guilt taken away? of a new standing before a holy God, of recognizing that I no longer carry this backpack of guilt, this like a backpack of rocks that just weighs down on me. I've I've recognized my poor in spirit nature and I'm mourning over it and now God has comforted me in Christ. He's my comfort. Happy am I. I don't really need a whole lot. I just need to know I'm forgiven and heading to heaven. It's kind of what Jesus is saying. And the second attitude then he moves on is kind of an interesting one. He then says, And happy, blessed, this inner contented spirit, regardless of outside circumstances then, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now I think part of what... Jesus is addressing here is the, is the response to being comforted and being part of the kingdom of heaven, then, okay, all the promises of God need to be fulfilled and I'm going to inherit the earth and I have this great inheritance, but I don't see it happening. So what's going to happen? And so maybe I become a forceful kind of person. What is meekness? Well, it's not weakness. Meekness is having a, a, a humble compliance to the will of God in my life. Meekness is a humble compliance to the will of God in my life, where I do not force the will of God in my life. I wait on God for His will to unfold in my life. You see, a strong-spirited person is going to try to force God's will. They're going to make decisions of everything from a new truck to an engagement ring, and they're going to force things that they should have never gotten into because... They got strong in their spirit rather than just having a meek, humble spirit of compliance to the will of God and restraining themselves. Someone has described meekness as strength under control. By the way, do you know trivia here? Do you know who the Bible says was the meekest man that ever lived? It was Moses. In some sense, a personification of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was ultimately the meekest man who ever lived. You talk about strength under control. Remember the old Easter time hymn, He could have called 10,000 angels, but He didn't. Right? He surrendered Himself humbly to the Father's will. Alright? And He was meek. He waited on God. Now, Jesus' listening audience, when He first spoke this, would have immediately thought of Psalm 37. So let's turn to Psalm 37. And once again, hold your hand or your bulletin in Matthew 5. But let's go to Psalm 37. This is a wonderful psalm, by the way. Psalm 37. And if you ever have a need of just being refreshed and encouraged, you're downcast. 
Or maybe you're just not sure what God is doing in your life. For many of us, that happens a lot. You need to kind of wear out Psalm 37. If you have an extra ribbon in your Bible or an extra marker or something, you need to mark Psalm 37. If you're not familiar with this psalm, you need to read it and read it every so often and be encouraged. Let's just read it from the beginning. It's a psalm of David. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. We're going to see in a minute that David had many evildoers threatening him in his lifetime. Be not envious of wrongdoers. You ever do that? You ever look at the pagans and kind of envy them? You know, if I didn't have this relationship with Christ that I'm kind of worried about and believe the Bible's true, I could be over here having an awful good time with these guys. Kind of envious of the wicked. Boy, the flesh is weak towards that thing. But a meek person is someone who will humbly wait upon God, an attitude of waiting for the will of God to unfold in my life, and I'm not going to force His will in my life. For he reminds, David reminds the reader that these wrongdoers, don't be envious of them, verse 2, because they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, there's a little bit of a clue. If you have your hand in there, look at verse 5 on our third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall do what? They shall inherit the earth. Look at Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land. Okay, he's going to talk about the land. These, these were promises to Israel. And befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. That's a meek person who refrains from anger and forsakes wrath. Do not fret yourself. It tends only to get to, to lead to evil. Verse 9, For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall do what? Here it is, verse 9. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The idea is there that they will be possessors of God's blessing for them. The things that God has promised to His children, He will bring it to pass. But we're impatient with God. Okay, I've had a broken spirit. Okay, I've been weeping over my sin. Now give me all your blessings. And he said, just be meek. Wait on me, control yourself, have restraint, and humbly wait upon my will to unfold in your life, and you will inherit the land. Keep reading in Psalm 37 now. Verse 10. Okay, at the end of verse 9, he just said, wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord... That's patience, we don't like that, shall inherit the land. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in an abundant peace. I like in verse 13 where it says, and the Lord even laughs at the wicked and he sees his day coming. All right, you can go back to Matthew 5. Listen, I feel confident that Matthew's Real, uh, that Jesus' real-time listening audience that Matthew is recording here 
would have immediately related what Jesus said to Psalm 37. Written by David many years ago. That the meek will inherit the land. Those who control themselves, those who wait upon the Lord, those who do not try to force God's hand, those who just remain humble and broken before Him, He will unfold His promises to them. There's a good illustration of this in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It, it, it has to do with why David wrote psalms like this. In fact, why don't you turn there? You'll find it in a few minutes. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And while you're turning there, let me just give you the background for this. You know David. When we talk about David in the Old Testament, it's David who killed Goliath, right? You know that guy. Well, do you realize that David had done that under the reign of King Saul, who was a big, strong guy? Remember, he tried to put his armor on David to go kill Goliath, but Saul was such a big guy, his armor didn't fit David. And so David left it behind, just got his five smooth stones in his sling, whapped Goliath between the eyes, and then killed him with his own sword after he fell down from the being stunned between the eyes and killed. And he cut his head off, and a couple hours later, he's walking around with Goliath's head in his hand, and King Saul calls him up and wants to meet this young boy. You read it, he is. He's still carrying his head. And after that, David became incredibly popular. And in fact, God's hand was upon him and he began to win numerous victories over the course of the next several years. He began to be a mighty warrior for King Saul and for God and for the restoration of Israel. And he became incredibly popular. But Saul had sinned in disobedience and not carrying out the plan of God to wipe out the Amalekites. And so God was removing Saul from his kingship. And Samuel, that's what the book we turn to, Samuel the prophet comes and anoints David, young David, king. And the the oil runs down him and he's Jesse's son that gets anointed. And he didn't look on on the outward appearance, he looked on the heart and David was a man after God's own heart. And God made David the next king. And so David was ready to inherit the land. He was ready to sit on the throne. He was ready to take over. But when you read in these historical accounts in the, land, in the history of Israel, Saul would not relinquish the throne. It wasn't God's time yet. And so David had to wait on the Lord and be patient and be meek to not force God's will. Now, David wasn't perfect, but overall, he waited upon God and he was meek. He was strength under control. He allowed God's will to unfold without screaming out and forcing and shaking his fist at God. I've had a broken heart. I've been weeping over my sin. Now, why don't you give me all the things to possess that you've promised that are in Christ and are in you? And we have an illustration of this meekness, this strength under control when, with David in 1 Samuel 24. Let's just read it because I can read it faster than I end up telling it. When Saul returned, beginning of 1 Samuel 24, when Saul, that's the king, returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Okay, I, I didn't make clear enough to you that you need to understand that for about 10 years or so, here's what David ends up doing after he had been anointed king. He ends up running in the wilderness away from Saul who's trying to kill him. Saul is jealous of him. Saul doesn't care about God's will, and so he wants to kill David. And so David has somewhere between four and 600 men 
kind of these bandits that follow him. And David just, he just kind of Robin Hoods out in the wilderness. I've been reading this lately and I've been circling every time it says that David was in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness because he's running from King Saul who wants to kill him, who's already thrown his spear at him several times. And David barely jumped out of the way in time. And so David's hiding out. Paul come, or Saul comes back from fighting Philistines and he says, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. They all knew where that was, I'm sure. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do, him, do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's the picture. This is an amazing story. All right, David's with his several hundred men hiding in the wilderness because Saul's out to get him. Saul gets a word that he knows about where David's located. He gets 3,000 foot soldiers and goes after him on his way to the wild goat's rocks where it's been reported in, in Getty where David is hiding. There's some caves by the sheepfolds there where the sheep herders used to hide out a little bit and get out of storms. And so David gets word that Saul and his men are coming. So David and his guys crawl back in these caves where there's rocks and boulders and it's dark. And on the way through there, old Saul's got to use the bathroom. So he goes up in the cave to relieve himself. And he goes into the very cave where David and his men are hiding. These guys are like, we won the lottery! Not only that, to use the bathroom, he's got to unbuckle his sword, take his outer coat off, drop it down, goes over, probably find some rocks. He's just trying to get up out of sight from his men and use the bathroom. They're in the wilderness. He has no idea that David and his warriors are hiding. They're watching the whole thing. And David's men say to him, Today's your day. Kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. It's your time to inherit the throne. Inherit the land. You've had enough weeping and mourning. Now possess all the things that God has for you, David. And that's what they say. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. That's what God says to you, David. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. In other words, stick him. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is incredible. And after David's heart, afterward... David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of... Are you kidding me? This guy is making his life miserable. This guy throws his spear at him. This guy lies about him. This guy will kill him every chance he gets. This guy has forced him to be a, a refugee in the wilderness for years, literally for several years. And David sneaks up and he doesn't... He thinks, I can't kill him. God appointed him king. I'm not going to kill him. So he takes his knife out and he just cuts off a corner of the robe. But then when he crawls back to his men and he shows them the robe, his heart convicts him. His conscience overwhelms him. That's David's heart. You talk about a sensitive guy spiritually. 
And then he said to his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, that's Saul, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's, look, God put him in the kingship, and God will remove him, and God will give me the inherited land when the time comes. God will give me what's rightfully mine in his time, not in my time. I'm not going to scream at God. I'm not going to yell at God. I'm not going to be frustrated with all the things God's not doing on my timetable. In fact, I am broken in spirit, and I weep over my sin, and I... I have an attitude number of my second attitude is of meekness. The surprising strength of meekness. Meekness is what gives you the land. Waiting on God to unfold his will in your life, having the self-restraint, having the self-restraint to allow God to unfold his will in your life. So David walks out to the front of the cave when Saul gets his clothes back on, goes back down the hill. Saul's walking towards his men, and Dave waves the Hey Saul, look at this. Saul immediately, he knows, he looks at his jacket and he realizes where that came from. He immediately understands that David was literally a few feet away from him and could have killed him when he was most vulnerable. And that he didn't. That David had restrained his might and his strength because he knew it wasn't God's will. And he waited on God. That's meekness. Humbly surrendering to the will of God, waiting for God to unfold that in my life. Well, the starting point is brokenness. That's attitude number one, an attitude of brokenness in my life. Secondly is the surprising strength of meekness, allowing God's will to unfold in my life in God's timetable. Let's pick up a couple more and then we'll go home. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall conquer the earth. Not on their own strength. God's going to give it to them. Why are they happy? Because if they're just meek, they're going to end up with the great inheritance. Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Thirdly, the third attitude that we're picking up from Christ here to get an attitude adjustment in our Christian life the attitude of brokenness, the attitude of meekness. Thirdly, it's the attitude of holiness. The spiritual thirst for holiness, number three. The spiritual thirst for holiness. Look at the metaphor that Jesus uses in his teaching. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst here are metaphors for an intense longing, a deep craving, a strong desire, a driving pursuit, a passionate force. I remember being on the Yukon River working when I was about 19 years old, salmon fishing, commercial salmon fishing, being out on the Yukon for like seven or eight weeks, and we would work long hours, and we had some pretty good food, but it was like, like bisquick pancakes fried on a barrel wood stove with a can of corn in it, you know, and we ran out of syrup. And, uh, and, you know, it was good food, but it, you know, we weren't hungry. We weren't hungry, but. And I remember being out, and it would go work into the night, it would be like two o'clock in the morning, and I'd be thinking about all my buddies, and I'd have a Big Mac attack. (laughs) I mean, what I wouldn't have given for a Big Mac, a large order of fries, and a Mountain Dew. And it's like it possesses you. It's like for the next hour, that's all you can think about. Man, I would like take my summer savings and fly into Anchorage so that I can get a Big Mac, large order of fries, and a Mountain Dew. Do you know that feeling of a 
just a desire. It's like it's what I want to think about. I really want it. That's the kind of stuff we have to relate to because we've never really been very hungry. By the looks of many of us, we haven't been hungry for a long time. (laughs) Janet tells me to quit taking my jacket off when I preach. So I'll show you how unhungry I've been. And so, what do we relate this to? This craving, this desire. It's like, man, I really, really, really desire to have that. The psalmist captured it, didn't he, in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, the ESV puts it, so pants my soul after you, O Lord. We sing that little chorus, don't we? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. I wonder, I wonder if most of us in our Christian life have ever truly desired righteousness with Christ as much as we've desired a Big Mac in the middle of the night. And I think the righteousness that he's talking about here isn't the declared righteousness. I don't think it's a justification righteousness. That is, when I come to God and I admit my sinfulness and I bow down before him and I say, Lord, I repent of my sin and I received your free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. He's my savior from my sin. He substituted in for me. I don't have to pay for my own sin. At that point, God declares righteous the believer. And it's, a, it's a, a set righteousness. I think more what Jesus is referencing here is a sanctifying righteousness. It's a daily living righteousness. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after walking in obedience and doing the things the way Jesus did them. Living the way God called us to live. A lot of us don't like the Christian life, but we've never really tried the Christian life. You ever think about that? Some... You know, they've got their fire insurance, but they've never, you've never really been broken over your sinfulness. You've never been to a place where you could mourn over your wickedness in the eyes of a holy God and, and then just waited with a meekness, a, a self-control to let God unfold his blessings in your life and then hungered and thirst after righteousness like after a Big Mac and a Mountain Dew, only a hundred thousand fold. It's no wonder the Christian life's not very satisfying. I'm comfortable with my sin. I've never, never grieve over sin. I'm pretty comfortable in this world. In fact, if the rapture came right now, I'd be pretty disappointed. I heard somebody say that a lot of Christians are going to go up feet first in the rapture because they're holding on so tightly to the things of this world. It's no wonder I don't enjoy being a Christian. I really kind of like a lot of my sinful stuff. And my attitudes need revamped. I need an attitude adjustment. And I need to just feel the blessing of God pour out on me and just in a meekness waiting for His will to unfold in my life. And then on a day-to-day basis to just know the joy of guilt-free living, the joy of walking in obedience, the joy of just letting Christ rule and reign in my life because I'm hungering and thirsting after that. And you know what? It's a little bit like coffee. Janet's also after me to quit drinking coffee. I think coffee's really good for you. You can think better. You can run faster. You won't get cancer. All kinds of things. I, I say whatever you want to say about it. it. Makes you stink. Gives you bad breath. You ever drink? You remember the first time you drank coffee? Nasty stuff. 
Why would anybody drink that? It's kind of an acquired taste, isn't it? It's a little bit of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Well, this isn't so fun. This isn't so good. But when you enter into the joy of the Lord and you begin to grow in your righteous walk with Christ and you learn the joy of obedience and you see the will of God starting to unfold in your life, you just get a taste for it that you love. You see, the things that are good for us, broccoli, never taste as good as the things that are bad for us. Chocolate-covered pretzels. I don't know how bad they are, but I'm sure they're not as good for you as broccoli. (laughs) But see, a lot of us in our Christian life, we've never hungered and thirsted after righteousness. We've never just pursued God and His Word. In fact, there's not a whole lot that we really know. And so keep listening to the sermon. Keep listening to the teaching of Christ. He ends with this one for today. He's still preaching, but I'm going to stop preaching pretty quick. Verse 7, And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know what that is a description of? That is a description of a person who who recognizes how much mercy and grace they've received from God so that in turn it shows in their relationships with other people because God has been so good and merciful to me then I will be merciful to you. But we don't like that. We want people to have justice. There's a story in Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. You know the story, many of you, if you've been around Sunday school very long. It's about a king who has a guy that works for him who owes him mega money. And, and the, the account's due, and it's overdue, and it's past due. And so the king grabs the guy and throws him in prison, rounds up his wife and his kids, gets all his stuff, puts it up on the, sale for, up on the auction block for sale, and tells the guy, you're going to be in prison until you pay the debt. And the guy falls on his face before the king and says, I'll pay you back, please forgive me. And the king says, you know what, I really like you, I will do that. He gives his wife and his kids and all his stuff back, he lets him out of jail, and he lets the guy, I think he forgives the debt. He forgives the debt. It was mega money. The guy gets out of there and immediately goes, and he's walking down the hall, and he sees a guy who owes him a $20 bill. And he grabs the guy by the throat, and he shakes him, and he hisses in his face. And he hisses and he says, and he, I'm gonna, you owe me that $20. In fact, I have a right. He throws him in jail, sells his wife and kids and all his stuff till he pays back his basically chump change compared to what he owed the king. The king hears about it, goes and grabs the guy who grabbed the guy by the throat who only owed him 20 bucks. This is Matthew 18. We'll get to it eventually someday. And he says, I showed you all kinds of mercy and you wouldn't show that guy a little bit of mercy? Then I'm throwing you in jail. It's over. And Jesus said, that's the kind of mercy showers we should be. That's the kind. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he turns it around a little bit. He said, you recognize how much mercy and grace God has poured out on you. Then you better let that show in your relationships. The attitude of selfless a selfless heart of kindness, the attitude of kindness. So we have a few attitudes in our adjustment process here. We have the attitude of brokenness, the attitude of meekness, the attitude of holiness, and the attitude of kindness. 
These are attitudes to be groomed, right? Attitudes that God will give us and Christ will give us out of his mercy. Listen, Jesus didn't, as I referenced earlier in the passage, Jesus didn't give us the how-to in this passage. So I take it he wants us to take it in and that he will give us the strength to figure out how to live it out. And through his grace and his mercy in his strength, we can do all of this. In my weakness, God gives me strength to be able to live this stuff out. And notice that every one of these qualities is from the inside out. Everyone is from the inside out. It's things that go on inside of me that are going to show on the outside. And I'm going to be a happy person. I'm going to have a peace and a contentment that maybe my husband or wife never recognized in me before. Maybe my grandkids will see a little different pap there. As these attitudes, these beautiful attitudes unfold in my life by God's grace. Let's pray. Um, Father, we need your strength and your help for this. It's um, a long journey, it seems to us, but yet it's not long and we'll be in your presence and we will inherit the ultimate promised land. Father, would you just help us to, to have a sense of brokenness over the reality of who we are before you apart from Christ? Give us the ability to mourn over sin and sinful people and to not envy sinful people. Give us the ability, Lord, to wait on your will to unfold in our lives and have a meekness about us, a humble patience as you accomplish your purposes. Father, give us a drive for holiness, an attitude of hungering and thirsting after you. And then let that translate into a life of kindness as we recognize how merciful you've been to us that we will in turn be merciful to others. Father, would you accomplish your purposes in us, help us to be strong in our faith and to recognize through the prodding of your Holy Spirit how to live out the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.